The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome, welcome. It's uh, nice to see you all. It's nice to practice together. And tonight I want to talk a little bit about this uh, phrase that I heard a number of years ago, and then recently I heard it again. And it's uh, attributed to John Wellwood, who is a psychologist as well as a Buddhist practitioner. And this phrase is that but the practice is about waking up and growing up. It's kind of this interesting idea, like that waking up, right? Enlightenment, uh, awakening, you know, this peace and freedom, like going in that direction. But growing up, like maybe working with all those issues or things in our life that maybe are... Well, I like this expression that Jack Cornfield uses, this unfinished business of the heart. These things that maybe still need a little bit of metabolism or I don't know what they need exactly, but this idea that practices both. We can't just do one without the other, even though, of course, many of us come to spiritual practice maybe kind of secretly hoping we won't have to work with that kind of that uh, stuff some of the difficulties, some of the really difficult stuff. (laughs) And to be sure, we don't have to at the beginning, but as our practice unfolds, you know, our capacity to be with whatever is difficult really grows. And so then we're able to be with or understand or hold all the difficulties in a different way. So there's a, a poem that talks about this. Well, I'm interpreting it to talk about this. I don't know what the, the poet's intention. I'm not sure what her intention was, but this is how I'm interpreting it. And this poem is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Maybe some of you have heard this. It was like this. One. Walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Five, I walk down another street. I kind of like this, right? So I walk down another street. 
I like this progression. Like, at first we don't see it, but then we're like, I don't want to see it, but then we see it, but we have this momentum of the habits, the patterns of our life that even though we see what we're doing may not be so helpful, we can't do it anyways. This is part of the human experience. And then we might say, you know, and then walk around it as really gaining some wisdom and some understanding. But we might say that chapter 5 is walking down another street. This is maybe where some real spiritual awakening is happening, where just things are seen and understood in a really different way. And one of these ways that uh, this waking up is described, there's a number of different ways people point to it or talk about it, but one way is that there's a radical shift in the sense of self, where the self-concept is different, it's, uh, or self-concept goes away, we could say. So there's no longer this idea that there's a self, that there's a core, that there's an essence to which one appends experiences. Like having this core, then just all these experiences happen to this core. Instead, it's just this recognition that all there is are experiences, right? There isn't an essence or a core, like so often we might think, of course we think that. This isn't something you have to believe This isn't something that you have to try to make sense logically necessarily. This is something that more makes sense with some meditative experiences or experientially. So, And I know certainly when I first heard this, I thought it was very peculiar and bewildering and puzzling and odd. So you might be having that experience too when I mentioned this idea of not-self. But I want to talk about it just a little bit here. Because... Jack Cornfield, who's you know a senior teacher in this tradition, if not one of the most senior teachers in this tradition, he talks about how this a similar kind of an idea of a progression of towards this understanding of not self. Maybe in the same way there's this growing up and waking up, and maybe in the same way the poem, but the poem maybe is a little bit misleading because it's very, you know, it's a poem and it just goes one, two, three, four, five, making things like this is a perfectly linear experience. But of course it isn't. This waking up and growing up, this maturing in our life, maturing in our spiritual practice, isn't neat and tidy in a straight line. It's We could think of it more like a spiral. We have a little bit more insight into understanding what our habits and patterns are, and then maybe that allows our meditation to deepen a little bit. We're not so caught or triggered. And then as our meditation deepens, then we can see some, oh, some even deeper patterns. Maybe we can soften those and realize, oh yeah, that's not so helpful. And then as those get let go of, we can settle even more. And so this spiral just continues on and on. So it's a little bit misleading, like this poem that I read and just this um, idea of what Jack Cornfield has, but I'd like to uh, share it nonetheless. So Jack 
And maybe I'll um, back up, I'll add this before I talk about it, that in the Buddhist teachings, there's really this emphasis on waking up, you know, how to become awakened. There isn't so much about this growing up, like how to heal those parts of us that uh, need healing, how to work with the real difficulties in our lives, trauma, or, you know, so many things that just being in the modern world these days that we need to work with. So the Buddhist teachings don't address that, not at least directly. But there's a, different modalities, of course, that do. So this recognition that you know, we might need more than one way to approach this uh, waking up and growing up process. So Jack Kornfield describes that first is like reclaiming and healing our sense of self. I appreciate this very much. So maybe with meditation that we, we might start to understand, oh, some of the painful conditions that created perhaps this part of our sense of ourself that feels like we're inadequate or deficient or somehow not enough, lacking in some way. This shows up differently for different people, and for some people it's a really dominant part of their experience, and for some people it's just a minor part. But to recognize some of these old patterns, where we got them from our young life, all of us gain patterns from when we are young, and then these patterns get reinforced with our family, our culture, our education, or society, whatever it might be. And then gradually ceasing to identify as much with these old patterns, just as we saw with that poem. And this is a process. This is not something that happens overnight. But this allows for this healthier sense of self to just naturally arise, to be created. So there's a way in which we can like, um, have the sense of wholeness and reclaiming our feelings, our perspectives, maybe our voice, our sense of, yeah, I- I'm here and I matter. And it's not... It's not uncommon that we need like a skilled person to help us with this, with this process of reclaiming and healing our sense of self. And the next would be like in this practice, in this practice, like developing our character and developing wisdom. And certainly, this is where Buddhist practice can be a big support for this. This, uh, like this patient training and repeated cultivation so much about meditation practice spiritual practice is about this training and cultivation eightfold path as well as like the seven factors of awakening the ten paramis right all these lists i'm not going to go through all these lists but maybe i'll just say like in the ten paramis are things like patience and resolve or Seven factors of awakening are things like joy and tranquility and equanimity. Eightfold path are things like ethical behavior and livelihood. So maybe we could just put big umbrella terms and say this idea of restraining from acting on impulses that cause harm. 
harm to ourselves, harm to others, as part of this training. And also, this training is like to systematically and intentionally direct our attention to different things. For example, with meditation practice, we bring the attention again and again right to the breath or whatever our object is. We do this to kind of help settle the mind and quiet the mind. But also just mindfulness to just be aware of what's happening. So having the intention to have our attention be with what's happening. Rather than remaining agitated and lost, just to be aware of what's happening. As well as placing our attention or intentionally cultivating, placing our intention on loving kindness, warm-heartedness towards others, towards ourself, compassion towards ourself and towards others. So these are some of the ways in which we can like develop our character and develop some wisdom. And Jack Cornfield's kind of like this second step of this cultivation. And then the third step would be discovering this positive qualities that are within us already. And recognizing that what I'm talking about cultivating and developing, but part of that is to allow what's kind of like obscuring or getting in the way of or covering over these beautiful qualities that all of us have. Of course we do. Of course we do. But sometimes we don't have access to them or sometimes we're feeling disconnected from them. But just to make them be more of an integral part of our life and readily accessible. So this idea that maybe we don't have to like improve ourselves, but just letting go of what blocks our heart or our wisdom. Because when our heart is free of fear or anger or this grasping or confusion, then these qualities that we've been trying to cultivate or have been cultivating just manifest naturally. Of course they do. So a big part of practice is recognizing this and allowing it to happen, which turns out not to be so easy all the time. But maybe a part of this also is this, of this process is honoring our personal identity, like recognize that there are deep patterns and archetypes that make up our individuality. We're not all exactly the same, of course not. We don't want to be. But can we allow some of these patterns and these archetypes, we might use that language, within us to be transformed from this something that we are really holding on um, tightly to something that allows to have this uh, way that really serves our life and serves others. Some examples that Jack Cornfield gives is that maybe we have this critical intellect that then can help support us with discriminating wisdom. Or we have this desire for beauty and this can support the force that brings harmony. Or maybe we have this 
capacity for intuition, and maybe this could be a gift for healing ourselves and others. So then, okay, going along this uh, path of uh, development, this uh, fourth step that Jack Cornfield talks about is combining this development and discovery of this self with the realization of the emptiness of the self. So this recognition that we need both, we need a strong sense of self in order to recognize or understand the lack of an inherent self. This, you know, we're using this word self kind of loosely in these different ways. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. But this one thing I like to say is this realization that there isn't this core or this essence that has to be protected and bolstered and make sure everybody else uh, sees it the same way that we see it and all these ways that um, often bring a lot of difficulties and suffering in our life when people don't see us the way that we want them to or or we don't want people to see as if we have this idea about ourselves as somehow unflattering, we don't want other people to see, then we don't allow intimacy with others. So this realization, this recognition that there isn't a core, this stable, permanent core at the center, is associated with a lot of joy and freedom, and it's a sense of relief When we think about it, it might sound kind of frightening and odd. That's perfectly fine. That's our thoughts about it. But the experience is one of like, oh my goodness, what a relief. This thing that was so heavy and I've been carrying around, I can put it down. I don't need it. It's extra. So in this practice, we do need a strong and healthy sense of self. We, it's we needed to withstand the going through these processes and part of meditation as meditation deepens then there's a sense of um, the sense the sense of a self starts to get really thin and soft and sense of the body changes the sense of the mind changes in some of these deep states sometimes we don't um, experience that until we have some retreat practice in those type of settings The point I'd like to say here is that the that the development of the self and the realization of not self they kind of evolve together. And some of you might recognize or know that this um, the teaching of not self is one of three characteristics. We kind of have this. We often use this language: three characteristics of experience. One is that there isn't an inherent permanent core, anatta, in Pali, not self. Another one is that things are impermanent. Like we know this, we know that things change. And the second one that there isn't anything that's a lasting source of happiness. There's not a single thing that will forever and always make us happy. In fact, it's often uncomfortable and stressful and painful. Dukkha. Anicca, 
impermanence. Dukkha gets translated so many different ways. I'll say suffering, anatta, not self. Turns out everything has these three qualities. Everything. And part of practice is we start to see that and then we stop kind of like insisting that they be otherwise, trying to make things stay, be permanent and stable or make us happy and in a way that they can't. They just inherently can't. So I talked about these uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta as three characteristics, but Gil Fronstall appreciates that uh, sometimes he teaches them as less as a characteristic of objects, so less as nouns, or, but more as uh, adjectives or perceptions. And I really like this because it points to more our experience. So not so much about what are some teachings that we've heard and maybe some philosophy, but what's actually our experience at this moment, independent of what you know somebody has said. Like, what's actually going on? And so we could say that anicca, we could translate as inconstant rather than impermanent. When the mind is quiet, we start to see, oh yeah, there's like a fluttering or a flickering of our experience. Like, we're not having just one single experience all the time. Maybe the mind is resting on the breath for a moment, but then there's a sound and the mind goes to the sound and comes back to the breath. That's not just one constant experience. Or maybe there's um, being with the body and then realizing, oh yeah, the body's breathing. And then just being with the movement of the body in a different place. So... It's more easily understood of maybe like experience is just recognizing it's really changing all the time. And sometimes when we think it's not changing is when it's the most difficult. When we feel like, oh, it's going to be like this. It's never going to be different. So instead to notice, oh, yeah, it's changing. So anicca is inconstant. All our experiences are inconstant. We are not having just one experience forever, of course not. And then we can look at dukkha as being painful, rather than translating as suffering, maybe being painful. And so this, we do have mental experiences, we have physical experiences that are uncomfortable And it might be that part of the reason they're uncomfortable is because they're always changing. We want that to be stable. We want a place to land that's going to make us happy. We want a place to just like relax and like, oh, okay, I got to figure it out finally. But that place turns out doesn't exist. Doesn't stop us from keeping on looking for it, of course, but And it doesn't matter what somebody says, we keep on looking. This is something that we also have to experience. But this idea of dukkha as painful, 
just to recognize that there were, it's not, everything isn't like bliss and happiness. Maybe we know this. But even to even notice those moments when we do feel fantastic, there's often this flickering of like, oh, I hope this doesn't end. Oh, what was I doing right before so I can make sure I get this experience again? There's this kind of flickering of that's happening. Just to notice that. And then to translate, as I was doing earlier, anatta as not-self. Some people translate it as no-self. And then that gets a little bit more complicated as, what does this mean, there's no self? Of course I have a self, I'm here. But not-self is more like, nope, that's not myself, that's not myself, that's not myself, this is not myself, this isn't myself. It's kind of like pointing to how when we investigate, nothing has this core, this permanent core, this essence at the center. So I appreciate that, how like all, the, all these uh, three perceptions, we might say, these different ways of understanding anicca, dukkha, anatta, is really pointing to our direct experience. Not a philosophy, not a metaphysical belief, not something that we have to adopt. It's more just uh, encouragement to look into it and to examine it. Or, you know, what's really going on in our experience? Maybe, like, shifting our experience from, we often are, when we have an experience, we bring in all kinds of concepts or personal history or philosophy or something that we add on top of our experience. And to shift away from that towards just noticing the stream of moment-to-moment impersonal experience that, for the most part, we aren't controlling. So part of putting the conditions in place to allow this shift in perception from things being permanent and or satisfying or having a stable core is we, don't, we can't like make that happen, but part of putting the conditions in place in which that becomes more evident in our experience is to be cultivating the opposite. So just like with Jack Cornfield, it was and this waking up and growing up, like we cultivate the sense of self to help us to see not self. In the same way, we cultivate stability to help us see inconstancy. And so what does that mean to cultivate stability? Part of it is our meditation practice, is we maybe sitting quietly, like literally, physically being stable. It turns out that this really does have an impact on us to pay a little bit of attention like to our posture, to have some uprightness and some settledness, to feel connected to the ground. Sometimes when I lead guided meditations, I talk about feeling the sitting base, like the foundation of what you're sitting on, the pressure against the buttocks or the back if you're sitting in a chair, what the feet are on. 
So feeling connected and grounded, literally, physically, is one way that can support a sense of stability. Sometimes We often just don't pay attention to that, but we can bring our attention to that. Also, we can use some imagery. Sometimes uh, the idea of mountains or rocks or certain like redwood trees, you know, here in the... Certainly here in Redwood City, right? But this, that there are things in our experience that have a sense of stability, and we can use that imagery to support us, either in our meditation or in the way that we are thinking about things or considering. And we have this expression. I know sometimes we will refer to somebody, well, this person was my rock when I was going through difficulties. Well, what does that mean? That person, of course, moved, but they were sa- supplied some stability. So what does that mean? And can we do that for ourselves or can we do that for others? So one of the opposites of inconstancy of stability, we can think about physical stability, but also mental stability. And a part of mental stability is concentration. So allowing the mind to really get settled, not to be jumping around, or, but instead to rest on the sensations of breathing, for example, or maybe doing metta practice and just allowing the mind to quiet. And of course, this doesn't happen the first time we try it. This is something that gets uh, cultivated. And with practice, it really does happen, though, that there's a sense of stability can happen as the mind quiets down. And we might use this word also like composure, like being collected or this, this sense of wholeness or being in harmony with ourself and with others and our environment. So not fighting against or not pushing against or running away from, but having this sense of composure. As well as, you know, composure, we think about uh, keeping it together as best we can, right? And all of these, of course, are supported by, you know, learning to soften the judging of our experiences. I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I don't want that, this better go away, I need more of that. You know, our whole life can be nothing but this. But is there a way that we can soften that? Like, yeah, this doesn't match my preferences, but it's okay. Yeah, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but I'm going to open to it and see what's going to happen next. You know, instead of always, always, always seeking, 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 trying to make everything be just like our preferences, in some ways that's the opposite of stability. That's just forever seeking. Is there a way that we can soften our experiences? In the same way that muddy water, right? You know, the, the dirt kind of settles. But there's a way in which if we're allowing our preferences, our aversions, or things that we want to be agitating the mind, there's a way in which we're like always stirring the pot and the mud never really settles. So is there a way that We can learn to do that. And of course, meditation practice and all these other practices support that. 
So, in order to help with this uh, insight into inconstancy or to notice the inconstancy in our experience, we can cultivate the opposite, stability. And then to notice or to be with the opposite, to be with dukkha, I could say painful, is to cultivate a sense of well-being. And well-being is this has this really wide spectrum of terms that we can think of joy, happiness, gladness, contentment. These ways in which there can be a sense of maybe uplift in the heart. It's important to cultivate this. It's an integral part of our life and our practice. Sometimes we might think like, oh, that seems frivolous. I have work to do. It's so important. It's really important. I know I certainly felt like, what? Joy, yeah, okay, that's for everybody else. I really have to work hard here. That's for the people that have everything all together. You know, I don't have it together. I have to work hard. It turns out that it doesn't work that way. We need joy. Of course we do. Happiness, well-being, contentment. Even like these really subtle things like, yeah, things are okay. Things are okay. Even if that's not our dominant experience, even if there's just this little part like, yeah, it's okay. This posture I'm in right now feels all right. Just to notice those. We often we like to be dismissive of them, but to notice them. And then we can also like intentionally cultivate appreciation. What are we grateful for? The simple things like for me, coffee in the mornings. I love having coffee in the mornings. It just makes me happy. I'm not even too particular about the coffee. <laughs> so, you know, simple things like this. Or maybe there's big, giant things. Maybe you've received some real benefits in your life. And to have some appreciation. Cultivate some generosity. Help somebody out. Give your time to somebody. Give some money to something that you feel moved to do. To be generous is a way in which kind of always makes us feel good. If it doesn't make you feel good, then maybe you're doing generosity in the wrong way. We don't want it to feel like something that you have to do. Just do it as a way that supports a sense of well-being. And then, of course, the opposite of not-self I was talking about earlier, but we might be able to summarize what I was talking about with this word confidence. Maybe the to help seeing the insight into not-self is to cultivate confidence, as I talked about earlier. And you might say, well, why do we need to cultivate these perceptions of anicca, dukkha, anatta, inconstant, painful, not-self? Deep insight into these are doorways to awakening are doorways to greater and greater freedom, are doorways to peace and ease. So there's a way in which having some, perceiving them, having some insight into them in a way that's not just thinking, but that is actually like experiencing them can be transformative 
It allows this deep letting go. It allows this deep softening and opening that allows for greater and greater freedom. So growing up and waking up, they happen together and we can cultivate part of the growing up part to help the waking up. But maybe that's too simple of a way to say it. They definitely happen together more in a spiral. So with that, I'll end. And I'll open it up if there are some questions or comments. Thank you. Um, question. I feel like in my meditation practice, I get a lot of glimpses of where suffering comes from, and there's hints, and it's very obvious to me. Uh, it's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable in this suffering. Or I get a lot of hints around um, impermanence, right? Like breath comes, goes away, so I get a lot of hints. Do you have easy pointers of what the hints are for not-self? They seem harder for me, at least, to detect or get hints of, like, ah, not self, not self, not self. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So one, I could say that often impermanence, seeing impermanence, leads to, oh, well, things are always changing. They can't be a lasting source of happiness. And why was I identified with that anyway? So it kind of the... See, I had a better way to, I had this better language to say that. But often it's described as it starts with impermanence and leads to not self. So I could say that. But something else is, uh, are you familiar with this idea of Vedana, the like uh, feeling tone? I'll just say briefly that every experience we have comes in three, we might say, flavors pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We notice the pleasant because we want more of it. We notice the unpleasant because we want less of it. We often am not noticing the neutral things, like maybe the feeling of your feet on the floor, right? It's Maybe it's just neutral, so we don't notice it. It can be helpful to pay attention, to like set an intention. Okay, I'm going to pay attention to the neutral things because often the mind just thinks, oh, this is boring. I want to go find something that I can want or not want because it turns out that wanting and not wanting bolsters our sense of self. A self, when we have this permanent idea or this concept of a self, it's always wanting or not wanting. But if we create the conditions in which the wanting and the not wanting go away, then maybe there can be this glimpse of, oh, there's, there isn't anything here. So I offer that as one. Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else have a comment or a question? Yeah. sort of along the same line. It's just a comment, but I heard somebody ask, what would be left if there's no, nothing left to, to solve, to fix? What's left? 
And that really struck me when I heard that. It's, I don't know, simple, but it was... Thank you. Yeah. Um, in thinking about dukkha, what I've been noticing is that there's there's different levels. There's the dukkha that's obviously uncomfortable, whether it's physical pain or difficult emotions, or but then there's like a quieter level of dukkha that's just like the unescapable mundanity. <laughs> Like, that you have to brush your teeth every day. You don't have to. No, you don't have to. But if you don't, that will lead to greater dukkha. Well, there's consequences. And that you have to eat. And just these, you have to get dressed. The banal. Just the, the mundanity that will never stop as long as you're alive and is in some way burdensome simply because it's... And we pretend it's not. We're like, celebrate eating, right? To avoid that feeling. And we celebrate clothing to avoid that feeling. And But once all that sort of settles and clears away, there's a recognition that actually it's just a subtle level of dukkha. It's just an inescapable reality of being human and alive. And having bodies, right? We have to take care of them. The burden of having a body and just needing to fulfill these tasks and go to the bathroom and, you know, just, it's not, you can't get away from it, you know. Um, So just recognizing that that is actually a fundamental dukkha. Yes, yes, to existence. Yeah, dukkha shows up in so many different ways. Right? We could say everywhere if we, in subtle levels, we find it everywhere. And it's uh, like, in one way, I can say it's an unresolvable dukkha because you can't make it go away. So the only resolution to it is really anatta. Is really seeing through this uh, the identification and that that uh, resolution of our separation and sense of burden thank you thank you um, uh, last week you spoke of impermanence and for some reason I took issue with that and I was driving home and I was like, not everything can be impermanent. I was trying to grasp onto something solid. And I thought, well, you know, if, if you know, impermanence is guaranteed, then that's kind of like a, a, you know, a permanent solid thing that'll always be there. If today is a crap day, you know, tomorrow and every other day can't possibly be crap days. You might just get lucky and have a, a good day or something. But for some reason, I don't know why last week I, I, I kind of clung on to that impermanence and whatnot. And how, how do you feel about impermanence today? Well, I think I just came to my own conclusion that uh, that it's a constant, so that's kind of a something solid to grasp onto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and concepts, ideas, we can hold on to. Those are the only things that are steady, are concepts. 
but our actual experiences, right? They're not steady, or they are in constant. But mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, great. Thank you. Okay, so here we are at the top of the hour. So thank you there, very much. Or there's you one question online, but okay. I, don't know, I don't know if you want to take it. Sure. Okay. Let's see if I can answer it's, it quickly. Uh, can space be used to cultivate neutral feelings? Can space be used to cultivate neutral feelings? So I'm assuming that this is talking about cultivating space as one of the elements. Do you think? You, I'm, not, I'm not sure. To cultivate neutral feelings. I would say we don't have to cultivate... New, well, and if we're using feelings as Vedana, then um, we don't have to cultivate them. Just ve- neutral Vedana happens all the time. Neutral experiences. But neutral feelings, maybe they're meaning not being for or against. And I would say that's equanimity. And maybe I'll just say really quickly, maybe part of equanimity is seeing the big picture of things rather than getting lost in it. So maybe space can help with that. So there we go. There is is my uh, answer. Hope that was helpful. Okay, thank you.